It's July 18th, 2011, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome again to another episode. I have a couple announcements before we begin our interview today. The first is to announce that the Chasing the Light Photography Podcast is now available. Though it's yet to show up in the iTunes store, it should appear there pretty soon. But you can still watch it by visiting the Peach Pit Press website, where they list my and other video podcasts. Now, I'll have a link in the show notes on the blog, but if you simply type in Peach Pit Press and podcast in your in your Google search engine, you'll find it right there, and you can stream it over your computer. But as soon as it's available in the iTunes Music Store, I'll announce it here on the show. And for those of you in the California Bay Area, this weekend I'll be in San Francisco for an event being sponsored by Adobe. Now, as part of that, I'll be conducting a live interview for the show on Saturday, July 23rd, with Scott Kelby, who I'm sure many of you already know. Now, the details for this are being finalized, and it's been confirmed, but unfortunately, I don't have the details to share with you as of this time of this recording. Now, again, I'll be posting some of the information as soon as I get it on the blog, but if you follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and now Google+, I'll be releasing those details as they become available to me. So if you can make it, it would be great to see you, and please make sure to stop by and say hello. My guest today is a photographer that I recently met through a friend and former guest of the show, Charlie Holland. I had the great opportunity to hear Alia Malley speak about her work and her story as a photographer, and I immediately knew she would be a great addition to the roster that makes up the show. Her urban landscapes are beautiful photographs of a side of Los Angeles that many people never see, even those who have lived here all their lives. And the images bring an interesting and unique perspective that demonstrates the real diversity of landscape that exists in the city. Her images and the story behind getting funding for her latest project is especially fascinating and inspiring, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation with Alia Maui. Well, Alia, welcome to the Candid Frame. I'm excited to have you. It was a, it was great having an opportunity to see you uh, do a presentation at an art center a week ago. But uh, I'm even more pleased to have the chance to talk to you and your work. So, so welcome. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. I'm always excited to talk about photography. That's for sure. Well, Seth and uh, Charlie, two people I've interviewed previously on the show, talked very highly about you and your work, and they actually recommended you when I interviewed them uh, a couple of years back. But Ooh, that's nice. So we like hearing that. Yeah, so it just took me this long to finally to to put all the things together to make this happen. So, <laughs> well, here we are. So, t- tell me about your beginnings as a photographer. I mean, the, the work you've been doing lately is of, of of interest, but from what I pick up, it seems to be very different from where you started as a photographer. Yeah, I mean, I went to film school. I mean, I think this is where it really started. I've always I got a camera for my eighth grade graduation present and. I remember my mother tried to explain what depth of field was to me, and she was sort of, you know, she she's a hobbyist photographer. She now shoots on her iPhone, which is hysterical to me. But 
so she was trying to explain depth of field and, you know, I had no idea what she was talking about and um, never took any photo classes and then went to USC to study film and about halfway through the film school program there, at that time, the cinema school had a still photo department as well, which I think is long gone. This is in the early 90s. But, um, you know, halfway through this program, I thought, you know, here I am in this film program and I'm trying to tell stories at 24 frames a second, but yet I really have no idea how a single frame is made. And so I took a beginning black and white class and then sort of got hooked on it and I took another class and I think I took a total of three photo classes in that program and you know it was all black and white working in the dark room and I remember distinctly that I failed like flat out like got an F <laughs> in the chemistry section of the class but um, was not deterred and continued on and um, I think that was my first sort of introduction really to you know working in the dark room and sort of methodically making photographs and um, after I graduated I've always loved music as well and um, I had been uh, interning at a record company and went to work for the record company for a couple of years and then sort of a couple of years into working at you know in the music business I thought no I really really want to pursue photography you know because I'd been around all these sort of rock photographers and stuff and so I decided to quit at the ripe old age of, I think, 23, and uh, went freelance and started working in um, like music videos and commercials mostly and some short films, just sort of, you know, as an assistant or whatever, and assisting um, still photographers as well, although I was never very good at it, which is probably a blessing in disguise, but really had this idea that I was, you know, going to be a photographer and didn't really know what that meant, but... Um, just sort of based on the on the work that I had been seeing, you know, working in the music business. So I sort of pursued um, shooting bands and you know editorial, like music editorial. Like this is the days of um, like Raygun. Do you remember Raygun from mm -hmm. the magazines? So it was sort of in that era, and it was a really fun era to be working for magazines because I mean they still never had any money. You know, I remember Raygun never had any money, but they would allow you to do really fun stuff. And I remember shooting jobs on land cameras and turning in Polaroids. And that was like my finished product. And, or, you know, those are the photographs. I was like, Oh, here they are. Here are your land camera pictures, your Polaroids. And, and they would run them. And it was really, um, it was a time I think in a lot of magazines of graphic, like graphic arts had like exploded in the mid nineties, I think. And there's a lot of experimentation and, and the platform like the, you know, the Reagans of the world and those music magazines, it was really fun. So, um, I basically made no money and supported myself by working, you know, as an assistant in production on commercials and stuff. And, you know, finally it developed enough to the point where I was shooting regularly enough and I got a commercial rep in New York for still photography. And moved to New York to chase this big commercial career and got there and realized I hated it and decided that if I was ever going to pursue the kind of work that I wanted to make as an artist, that I really needed to put myself into a position where I forced myself to do that because you know how it goes. It's like otherwise it'll just sort of sit on the back burner because there's always something else you have to do. I didn't want to be a commercial photographer with a bunch of personal projects. Like, I didn't want that tag on my website that was like, 
personal projects. So for me, my heart just wasn't in the commercial work. It was a very decision. It was a decision that was very specific to me and my circumstances. And I have commercial photographer friends and, you know, that's awesome. And I just knew that my heart wasn't in that kind of work and it just wasn't right for me. So I left New York and moved back to LA and applied to grad school. Started grad school in 2007. And that's when I really, I mean, I, I knew that to pursue photography in the way that I wanted to make photographs, I really needed to put myself into a situation where I was going to be forced to think about making artwork, to make artwork. And so for me, grad school was that um, opportunity. But it's interesting that, that you, at two moments in your in your life, in your career, you had something that was consistent. It was reliable. First, it was this job with the music industry, and then later on, it was the commercial work. Yet in both yeah. those times, when you realized it wasn't really something that was you really wanted to do, you make the choice. You made the choice to change. And I think so often people, when they get into that in that space where they have to make a decision, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, no, I, you, I think you're right. And you did it twice within a short, short period of time. Well, it was about <laughs> 10 years apart, but yeah, I mean, it was, um, that's a really interesting point. I actually hadn't thought of it like that. I do remember that when I was quitting my full-time job, and I was working at an awesome label. It was a small British label called 4AD that was known throughout the 80s and I guess the early 90s as well when I was there, but not only for their music, but for their artwork as well. They had a, a division, the art directors that were working there, Von Oliver and Chris Big and Paul McMiniman, those guys were known for you know making these incredible uh, record sleeves and stuff. So it was a really fun job, and I do remember one day, like the week that I was leaving, like my my final week of working there, I remember thinking, what? <laughs> what am I doing? This is so insane. Like, I have no, like, what am I doing? Yeah. And I think, honestly, the fact that I was 23 and didn't know any better probably worked in my favor, you know? And I think it would be a lot harder now, for sure, to leave that kind of security. But, you know, it just sort of always worked out. I worked my ass off after that, you know? I worked really hard jobs in production and, you know, I mean, the worst of the worst that you know where the 18 hour night shoot is like the easy day <laughs> so yeah. i don't know i guess i just sort of listen to my instincts and intuition and you know what at the end of all this like what what do i want to say that i've done or you know <laughs> you know what i mean it's like what do what do i want to make out of this life and i just i knew that the record business wasn't for me well, it's so. kind of, it's a, i think it's a kind of difficult choice to make it especially the, the the second one because of all the types of photography that exists out there um fine art photography seems to be the one that's that leads to you to be uh, most likely to starve yeah uh, you know <laughs> So it, and I've had a day, day job, you know, for 10 years, you know, as you know, from my art center presentation, it's like I've have been doing research for directors over the last few years. And so but but that was that was a very, again, a specific decision on my part. Like, I am absolutely fine having a day job for now. I mean, ideally, I wouldn't have one and hopefully in the future I won't. But, you know, it was worth it to me. Yeah. Well, even even with a day job and even with the passion to create the imagery, it's yeah. always a challenge to make the time for your own work because life and the day job and all those other things, even if you're working independently and as a freelancer that provides you a good flexibility of time, it's amazing how much time can get sucked up by everything else but the work. So how, so how do you, so how do you, how do you deal with it? Well, I think grad school really helped because in grad school, I was forced to turn down 
because I work, my day job is I'm a freelancer and I work for myself. So I actually sort of curtailed some of those jobs so that I would allow myself, you know, I just had to have more time to get through school. You know, I still worked because I, you know, because I had to. You know, there's nothing like having a deadline. I can cannot overemphasize that. There's nothing like having a deadline to make work. That's part of the reason that I felt, I think, you know, a graduate program was important for me because that that's what you're describing is exactly what was happening. I was I wasn't making the work or I was only making it sometimes and it was really, really hard to motivate. Because yeah, I know that I mean that's how it goes. You you get online and then one thing you you go to like check an email and then ten other things happen and then the dog needs to be fed and then you're out of milk and you have to go to the store. So it just I mean life just takes over. Think I, I read an interview with Brian, you know, the musician and the producer who's one of my heroes and he said this is just like a couple of weeks ago, he was talking about how for him it's the same thing. It's like deadlines for him are essential. And he said he had thousands of songs that were never finished because they never had to be. And I think that's pretty telling for somebody of his stature, definitely doesn't have a day job. And what I would imagine would have all the creative freedom in the world, and yet he still needs deadlines as well. So I think it's not just, you know, emerging artists or anybody. I think I think we all need, for me, that's, that's the secret is having somebody tell me when it needs to be done. Like yeah. the Kickstarter book has to be done this week. So it's going to be done. <laughs> You've talked several, uh, several points so far about being pulled to create a certain, certain type of uh, image that was truer to your own, own vision. Yeah. Did you have an idea what that was or did you just have this sort of general sense because you had been doing, you know, more commercial work and, and, and doing stuff that doesn't reflect the body of work that you were doing now. Did you really have a clear sense that the work that that people are going to find on your website, that this is what you were meant to do, or was it a slower process? I think it was maybe a slower process. I mean, I when I was shooting commercially, I was shooting um, a lot of environmental portraits. And being in L.A., I was shooting, you know, the behind-the-scenes people, so not the actresses and not the starlets, because that seems to be, that celebrity photography seemed to be a whole sort of world into itself. But what I enjoyed doing and was you know, getting hired to do was to shoot the writers and the directors and the producers or, you know, the people behind the scenes. So that that's sort of more what I was doing. Yeah, and I was not shooting, obviously, landscape at all, because I think the only way to maybe shoot landscape in the commercial world is probably like cars or something. And that definitely was not my thing. So um, but to answer the second part of your question in terms of how I arrived at the work that I'm making now, which is almost entirely landscape, I think I can recall Actually, it was it was a editorial job. It was in San Francisco in probably the mid 90s. I had met this art director who's actually become a really good friend of mine, and he wanted me to shoot street fashion, not just you know the cool kids on the street, but sorts of details as well to sort of you know mix into the editorial spread. And so I walked around San Francisco with a Pentax 67 and came back with all these images that were like really graphic image, like graphic as in very graphic images of the city streets and the buildings and the architecture and just non-people pictures. So I photographed the street fashion as we'd agreed. And then I also just sort of, he just sort of let me go. And he was like, shoot whatever you want, you know, in terms of the environmental stuff and come back with it. So I think that that was probably the first time that I really became aware of like, whoa, you know, (laughs) there's Mm. like, uh, there's way more to this than what I previously thought and, you know, visually out there. So I don't know if that's a great description of it, but I definitely remember that was sort of a benchmark for me, that one little job. That sort of segued into shooting a lot of interiors, you know, empty buildings, empty spaces, 
And a lot of these places I was stumbling onto through my work in commercial production, you know, we'd get to a location and somebody would say, you've got to shoot this other building that's attached to this one. Like, you will flip out when you see this. And it was very much about these buildings that used to be used for something, as in they used to have some sort of utility, whether it was an office or whether it was a uh, like a technical lab or something. But they they were now disused, so they currently were lying fallow. And in fact, the only thing they were being used for was filming, which I thought was pretty weird. So I sort of, before I sort of committed to the landscapes, I was sort of working on these interiors of these empty buildings. I could definitely see a direct correlation from like walking on the streets of San Francisco and looking at buildings and architecture and then sort of moving inside to these empty spaces. And then at a certain point, you know, starting to work outside. And it's there's still like a sense of sort of wandering and discovery in the way that I work, very much in the same way that I think working in the interiors was as well. I was looking at your work and I particularly like the Southland series. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, having lived in Los Angeles all, all my life, it's very fascinating to see you photograph Los Angeles on the periphery. Um, yeah. In, in, in the fact that a lot of these photographs are recognizable as part of Los Angeles, but not what you would think. But, but, but they are not the things that identify Los Angeles, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I was just speaking with Jorg Kohlberg of Conscientious last week about this exact issue. And, you know, he's not from L.A., and, and you are, and you have a very you know, much more keen sense of what Los Angeles is as opposed to sort of the imagery that gets circulated out in the rest of the world, you know, the, the palm trees and the blue sky. But, you know, I mean, Los Angeles is a complicated place, and I, I think that there are a lot of stereotypes about it and stereotypes that are true, you know, but then I think there's also a lot a lot more going on. And my example that I figured about was that, like, we're in the middle of June gloom, right, and after May Gray, and I think, you know, it's this two-month period in this, you know, spring or early summer where the city is completely gray, at least on the west side, for most of the day, and... You know, nobody thinks of Los Angeles as being foggy, but it is. <laughs> I mean, not every day, for sure. It, it is and it can be. And I think that there's a lot more to L.A. than um, a lot of the, the imagery that's, you know, circulated through the, the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They would imagine we have all these ideas of what a place like Los Angeles is. And, and yes, those ideas are true, but I think there's also a lot more going on. And for me, I find that the periphery and these edges of the city is, is where it's, it gets really interesting and super weird. Yeah, because you focus on, on the natural world, which is not what people often think about in a city that prides itself in its fabrication. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, but the thing about LA in a way that, you know, New York is not or another big metropolis is that LA is, as we all know, has the sense of sprawl and I think that there's so much going on in these pockets, like these little moments of the pastoral within the urban that that I find really interesting. And the Southland work in particular was sort of about that. And it was not only about finding these sort of overlooked areas or pockets of wilderness within the city, but also places that used to be, much like the interiors I'd been shooting 10 years before, it was like the, these places that used to have some sort of usefulness, whether it's the train tracks and the exposition series or in, in the Riverside series, there was, you know, it used to be sort of a house situation there and and now it's sort of run down and you don't see the house you just sort of see the again the peripheral areas of it but you know like it, it will be something else again the exposition series those railroad tracks were part of the pacific electric railway and then i think they were that was sort of disbanded in the 1950s and it's been sort of sitting there and it's about to be sort of re-energized and rebuilt as the gold line or i think that or the exposition line the new train that's going to go out to santa monica so, yeah you know that was something definitely that i was thinking about wow that's 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 fascinating because that's, that's that's a part of Los Angeles that I've been through like a thousand times. 
And, <laughs> have uh, you walked down there and checked no, it out? No, I've never. It's pretty I've, weird. <laughs> that's really strange because I'm looking at that and I'm going, that's in the middle of Los Angeles? There's, um, there are a few of those images. Like one, one of the exposition images is literally the 10 freeways in the back. Like it's the off-ramp to Overland and, and one of the other images, an exposition 043A, it's the... I think that's Westwood in the background, you know, and and a lot of these places, I live in West LA and a lot of these places are places that I drive past, you know, all the time. This is sort of how I discover a lot of the times my locations and places where, I, where I'm going to make work. And it's like I drive past them and it's like, you know, there, there, there might be something really interesting there. Like, what is that? And then sooner or later, I'll actually stop. You know, sometimes there's something really interesting. Sometimes there's nothing interesting. Sometimes there's something really incredible, but you know there's no way to get a great picture of it, which is one of the conundrums of photography, I think. Yeah. How often would you have to revisit spots because the light and many of these shots is just beautiful but yeah. it's 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 not common so how how dedicated did you have to be towards a particular location before finding the image that you felt best captured what you were feeling I do revisit the locations and it sort of depends on where, you know where they are whether it's somewhere easy to access because access is a really big part of I should rephrase that safe legal access with the emphasis being on safe and not legal necessarily um, it's a really big part of my work and so if if there's a an easy, safe, legal-ish way for me to get back regularly to a location I will definitely go. So like there's exposition images. There were a couple in particular that I had probably been there maybe three or four times. I would look at the images and I would say, you know, there's definitely something there, but I think I just hit it at the wrong time of day or, or not even the wrong time of day, just like it's the wrong day. Mm-hmm. So I, I would go back, but not, you know, not always. Like there's sometimes I will, like some of the later Southland work, the Irwindale images for sure, I... I went out there and sort of scouted out that place just where I was shooting in Irwindale. I just happened to be out there one day for something completely unrelated. And I thought, well, that's an interesting place potentially. And so I sort of drove around. And then, you know, when I next had a chance, went out there with my camera and I sort of picked, I picked a day that I thought it might be good, you know, in terms of like the weather and the light and stuff. Well, what's fascinating about your images is that there's the the compositions tend to reflect more of a a classical nature than more than a sort of Uh a modern, modern compositional styles for that more frequently used in today's landscape work. Yeah. Uh, Can you, can you speak to that? Because your work is very painterly, and I'm, yeah. I'm curious as to how much of those those painterly influences play a role in how you photograph these scenes. Well, I think what happened, I mean, it's sort of a couple of things happened all at once, which is always nice when there's a nice confluence of goodness happening in one's work or life in general. And I think what happened is that I, honestly, I think I just got bored with looking at contemporary photography. I think there's so much of it out there, and as my day job as a researcher, as an image researcher, I was, you know, I look at literally thousands of images images a day and I think I just sort of burned out on looking at contemporary photography and spent a lot of time looking at more sort of classical photography and you know including going back to the 19th century guys you know Carlton Watkins and Timothy O'Sullivan and those guys and and I sort of this developed as I was starting to think more and more about landscape and how landscape had been represented over the years and so I began to make inquiries into well how is landscape represented before the camera and before photography and so that's how I ended up looking at landscape paintings. This sort of happened simultaneously as I was making the switch between analog C-print and digital archival pigment printing and using the large format Epson printers, which is what I learned to use throughout graduate school. 
I started thinking more and more about that, and there was sort of an ongoing conversation at UC Riverside where I went to school about the implications of working with these pigment printers as opposed to analog C print and um, or light jets or you know sort of the more traditional ways of making photography and photographic prints. And you know we started contemplating the idea that you know actually these pigment printers you're putting ink on paper, you're putting pigment on paper, and I began working with the rag papers and putting pigment on rag paper is actually, to me, it feels much more of a sort of medium that maybe employs techniques or attributes of other mediums like painting or drawing, as opposed to a classical understanding of like what a photographic print is. So I think there is something between the technology enabling me to start making these other sorts of photographic prints sort of happening at the same time that I was bored with looking at contemporary photography and then had been looking more at landscape painting and sort of the history of that. I think it was just trying to figure out another way to make landscape photographs. I think what's really sort of key was the fact that you were absorbing so much material that you were able to make an assessment in terms of the body of work that was being produced and have a sense of what you wanted to do as a result of doing that. I think for the large part, people, when they have an interest in photography, they look at those images that sort of inspire them, but mm -hmm. they're not necessarily uh, become exhaust the, the huge body of work that's out there to get mm -hmm. a to get a sense not only of what's being done commonly, but what's also being done on on the edges. Because I think it's easy to feel like oh, so many people are producing this kind of work, and this is the way it it has to be done or should be done yeah. and then getting locked into that even though it's not necessarily true to one's own own vision tell us a little more about the the, the research that you that you do because you, professionally you i think it provides you an advantage beyond just being able to make a living but talk about talk a little more about being able to sort of make that discernment in terms of the body of the work well in terms of the way my my day job and the, doing the research is that what you're talking about yeah, and mm -hmm, how that's right i help directors when they are they a job or putting together a proposal for a TV show or a movie, I help them put their treatments together. And so most of the time it's for a commercial project, but every now and then it's something else. And so I spend a lot of time researching imagery, whether it's online or in books. It used to be more obviously in books. And at this point, you know, every image ever seems to be on the internet. So I spend a lot of time looking online at imagery. And, you know, like I said before, I, I look at, you know, thousands of images a day sometimes when I'm working. And I think there was also something about that and how, you know, we all just flip through images, whether it's on Flickr or Facebook or just whatever we have to be looking at, you know, we just scroll through images after image after image after image and everybody's a photographer and, you know, everybody's cat is a photographer. And I think that that has been going on at the, at the time that I was learning how to make my own prints. And I, I think that that really fed into my thinking about how I was making these objects and making these prints and that I really wanted to create something that you're not just slipping through, that you're actually standing in front of or looking at on a screen, but it's obviously when you're making an object and it's on a wall, it's, it's sort of more maybe what I'm talking about here, but where you want to stand in front of that image and spend some t quality time with it as opposed to just like slipping through it. So I think that's probably a direct correlation between how my job as a researcher and the work that I'm making as an artist, you know, have been sort of responses to each other. Yeah. How, you're shooting analog. And I'm not. You're not. I was. Okay, you were. I okay. Because <laughs> one of the things I'm curious about when you were shooting analog, uh -huh. was it more about th that choice? Was it more informed by the 
different way it forces you to work as opposed to shooting digital, or was it primarily concerned with the sort of image quality film produces that that led you to make those make that initial choice? Well, I was shooting for I, I bought a sort of a, sort of in an insane moment. I bought a Deerdorf 8x10 in probably 1999 or 2000 and worked pretty exclusively with that 8x10 up until maybe 2008 or 2007 when I started grad school. And I think it was about the image quality for sure. As anybody who works with large format cameras knows, there's the apparatus that you're working with. The camera is so big that, I mean, it forces you to work in a certain way. And the film is so expensive that it forces you, again, to work in a certain way and really sort of pre-visualize or at least have some sort of idea of what you're trying to make before you actually release that shutter. So because every time you do, it's like 20 bucks or whatever. And I think it was working like that for a long time, you know, several years, and, and starting to work both in the interiors and then moving out to the landscape that with that camera that I learned, you know, how to be very, it's, the way that I work is now very slow and methodic. Even though I'm shooting digitally now, it's still sort of, it's, it's obviously faster because the camera's smaller and the technology, you know, I'm not, I'm exposing to a sensor and not like loading giant sheets of film, but there's something about working with those larger cameras that is so slow and so methodic and actually it was actually too slow and too, <laughs> and I hate to say too methodic, but it was too slow for being in grad school where, as I said before, you know, it's like you're forced to to produce work. Like every week you need to be making work. And the 8x10, you know, the nature of working with that camera is that it you become very sort of precious, I guess, over these, you know, working with these large negatives and, ooh, I don't want to take a picture of that. It's not really worth 20 bucks. And just the economics of it, it just were not conducive to producing a lot of work. So I switched to a 4x5. And I should also say that there was because I'm a woman and I work alone almost exclusively. Every now and then I'll take like my big dog with me out to shoot, but I tend to work alone. And that 8x10 was had become sort of a liability for me. I had sort of a close call one day shooting up in the Angeles Crest area where it just it, the situation got very weird very quickly. And I got my camera disassembled as fast as I could and thrown into my car so I could drive away as fast as I could. And I realized that I needed a smaller camera that I could move faster through the landscape with. And so then I began working with a 4x5. And then, and I think going back to your original question, it was very much about the quality of the image because there's nothing like, I mean, really, there's nothing like one of those giant negatives, you know, and a print from a giant negative. You can just tell intuitively. You look at it and you're like, that is a big negative. So I think that's sort of definitely how I came to working, you know, my approach to working in the landscape with cameras is very much based upon working with these large cameras. Yeah. Well, you're a photographer for whom the, the print is a particular part of the process. Yeah. And in today's world, that's not as common as one would think. A lot of images get produced and they never find their way to paper. Yeah. Tell us about why you think the the print, particularly the large prints that you produce, are so important to your vision of the work. I think there was an Ansel Adams quote once where he said, you know, making the image is like writing the symphony and then the print is actually playing the piece. I think that's really a great way to think about making photographic prints because, yes, so many images just exist online or as JPEGs and, you know, a lot of mine do as well before I actually start to print them. And it's complicated, you know. I mean, how do we experience photography these days, a lot of the time it really is looking at JPEGs on the screen. And for me, that's like listening to AM radio, like you're listening to the radio and you're like listening to the songs on the radio. And then like, if you actually make a print, it's sort of like going to see the band like in concert, you know, and it's mm. amazing. But it's, um, I don't necessarily, I think they're just sort of different ways to experience the work and to have a relationship with the work. Because for sure, everybody looks first at images as JPEGs. But for me, 
as an artist, making these objects is a really big part of it. It's, it's sort of astounding to me sometimes when I think, oh my gosh, so-and-so, they say they really like my work or, you know, they've shown a lot of interest, but they've never even seen a print, you know, and it's just like mm. experience the work just as a JPEG. It really is just like listening to the song on the AM radio as opposed to, it's not even like a hi-fi <laughs> stereo. You know, it's not even like you're sitting with your headphones on. It's just like in your car and you're driving around with the windows down and you're listening to the radio. But I'm very invested in the idea of making objects for sure. Mm. And that's a really big part of it for me. The print is such an important part of it, for sure. Let's talk about uh, the latest project, The Cavalier Inside of a Village. Yes. And why don't you talk about that and tell us about this whole Kickstarter phenomenon that you experienced recently. Well, Kickstarter is completely insane. And I had actually never had a first-hand experience with it until I decided to throw my own project up there. Like, I'd read about it a bunch, but nobody I knew had done it, and that seems to have switched pretty quickly in the last, like, few weeks, even, like, people I know are putting Kickstarter projects up. So I think there's sort of, like, an odd tipping point happening with Kickstarter, where, you know, a month or two ago, people I'd talked to about it either were already over it because they were inundated with requests by all their friends and their, you know, to support their creative projects, or they'd never heard of it. A Cavalier Inside of a Village is the new series, which I'm super excited about, and I decided to use Kickstarter as a platform to help fund the publication of a book of the work. Again, deadlines here, there is an exhibition at Sam Lee Gallery of the Cavalier work which will open this November, and I wanted to have a catalog of sorts, like a book to accompany that exhibition. I just didn't have the financial resources to sort of make that happen as a, an emerging artist, so I thought, well, you know what, Kickstarter, we can just try it and see how it goes, and it might be a total disaster. In fact, it has completely exceeded my expectations and has been a really powerful tool, I think. One of the things that you, you when I heard you speak, which I thought what was really key is that you mentioned that you had email lists, that you had the information for a lot of people who followed you and supported your work. Yeah. And I, I felt that that was really essential for the success of this particular attempt on Kickstarter. I think a lot of people put stuff up there and, and expect people just to discover yeah. it. But I think it was you being not only having a, a fantastic body of work, but just have having built the foundation and that network well before you put that first first word up on that website. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And I, you know, I looked at, um, you know, when I looked down the list of supporters, and they're probably like sixty or seventy supporters or, you know, backers to the project, as they call them on Kickstarter. And there are probably maybe 10 of those are people that I don't know, actually, which is kind of amazing. And, and those people came from, you know, there were some, some blogs, had posted some stuff about my project and Center and Santa Fe had posted my project on their curated Kickstarter page. And so a few people sort of came to it through that, I think. But I, I think what I've realized is like the, the internet is not going to magically fund your project. You know, a lot of people will, you know, throw down like $20 or whatever, you know, like a lot of people will really step up and contribute to support a project and a artist that they believe in. And it's been really phenomenal to see, you know, that kind of support happen. Like it, it's been, it's, it's been, yeah, pretty amazing. So, but I think you're absolutely right that it comes down to having sort of that, that base of supporters that you already have email addresses for and, you know, and that they're friends or collectors or other, otherwise very supportive of your work and believe in your work. And I think that's really important. That, that probably comes back from, you know, working as a struggling commercial photographer, you know, all those years with like sending out promo cards and, and you quickly mm. start to, to realize like which art directors like your work and get you and get your work and are just sort of nice people in general. And, you know, it's, it's, 
it's something similar to that, I think. Do you find that you're doing much of the same type of promotion of your work that you would have had no. to have done as a commercial worker? Or how no, is that? no, 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 not at all. And in fact, I think it's, you know, the fine art world, the art world is such a, it's, it's a beast in a different way that the commercial photo world is. I was just talking to somebody about this this morning. It's like, it's, it's still a beast, but it's just a different sort of beast. And, you know, I think at a certain point, I just, I think it's so important just to sort of shut everything out and just make your work. At a certain point, it's like I need to step away from the Internet. Like, I can't look at any more blogs. I can't look at any more work posted online. Like, I just can't think about other people's work anymore, and I just really need to focus on what is important to me and what kind of work do I want to be making. And I think I think that's essential. I was speaking to another friend of mine about that particular thing just a couple days ago, and we were sort of agreeing on that. Like, you just, it's so easy to be overwhelmed by the amount of other work being made out there. It's just, I think it's good to be aware of what's going on, but I think you just have to tune it out at a certain point. And, you know, I don't, I don't sort of actively promote the work. Not at all. Not, not at all in the way that I would have as a commercial photographer. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you sort of sustain the, the forward momentum when you're producing a work that's sort of unlike most of the work that's being produced out there uh -huh. that you know you're very, it's you're very passionate about, but particularly in the fine art world, which can be pretty fickle at times. Well. And say, I'm going to persist in putting this work and putting it out there and somehow find the audience for it so that I can continue doing it. Uh, it's a difficult, difficult path to walk, which I, which I think is why so many people don't choose to follow it. So what is it about your experience that allows you to sort of persist? It's a tough question. I mean, I think I just make it because I can't imagine not making it, you know, and I'm very lucky that I've been working with a, a, a gallery and a gallerist, Sam Lee, who believed in my work from the minute he's and he had seen it somewhere and invited me in for a studio visit. Actually, it was a non-studio studio visit. I actually took a portfolio to his gallery. You know, months went by between his initial email, you know, inquiring and then to when I actually went down with the portfolio. And I think that's key is to have somebody believe in your work just to sort of validate it. <laughs> Maybe so you're not just completely working in a vacuum all the time. You know, it's, it's helpful to have a supporter like that. But I just... Honestly, I can't imagine not making work. And so I think you just sort of have to push ahead and, you know, keep your head down and work really hard. I wish there was a magic formula, but I, I don't think there is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had something more insightful to say about that. But honestly, it's just a matter of like keeping at it and keep working. And, and I think it's also key to have maybe only a few people that you seek advice from as well. You know, keep your critics choose your critics wisely I think it's really important as well because otherwise you won't get anything done oh that's gold right there I mean but you know that from the world of commercial photography as well it's like you'll take your portfolio in to one art director or art buyer and they will look at it and somebody will say oh there's not enough celebrities in this and the next person will say well there's too much celebrity in this and you just I mean I think I learned a long time ago just even in that world that you can't please everybody you can't, you know, all of the time. Yeah. And so you've really got to stick to your own instincts. And actually, I went and saw Matthew Weiner, the, I hope that's how you say his name, the creator of Mad Men mm -hmm. yeah. on a panel. Yeah, on a panel, which I love that show, on a panel a couple of years ago. And he actually was the one who, for, you know, said that and it really sunk in. He, he's like, you know, as a young screenwriter in Hollywood, you really need to choose who you show your scripts to because, very, you know, very you take that very seriously and very wide, you know, it's don't take that lightly because if you get bad advice it can be devastating you know all it takes you know you're so sort of like as an emerging artist or a young screenwriter and you're just starting to go out there and if 
you get enough bad criticism and not in a constructive way that can be really uh, devastating. It makes you never want to create work again, and that's no, <laughs> not the point yeah. of this. You know? Yeah, you have to become very discriminating and, and, yes, and be exactly. able to filter a lot of that stuff because yeah. you know some people may be well well intentioned, but their comments well, can come from yeah. a can come from a, a yes. place that isn't really serving your work. <laughs> and you see that for sure in like graduate school and the critique, cl- you know, the, the critique classes for sure. It's like, you know, towards the end, my critiques were like a joke. I mean, not a joke, but it was just like all I would hear was like, you know, bad, just, oh, your work is so bad, your work is so bad. And not not from everybody. And certainly I had, you know, there was a couple of faculty members that took me under their wing, which was awesome. But it's like at a certain point, you just have to sort of tune it out. Mm-hmm. Like there's that scene in Revolutionary Road. And at the very last scene of the film, the husband is sitting in his chair and the wife is like squawking at him from the kitchen or something. And just, the camera is on him and he just turns down his hearing aid. <laughs> and I think you do. You just have to like turn down your hearing aid at a certain point and just like get on with whatever it is you're going to make. Mm. Well, the last question I always ask is I ask a photographer to recommend and suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anybody, someone you've long admired or someone who you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I love, love, love Todd Heido's work. I'm sure he, he's not exactly unknown, but I think he's actually, we've become very good friends. And I think his work is so interesting because it's a weird mix of both portrait and landscapes. And yet to me, they feel all like they're little fragments of stories or narratives that could actually all go together in some one big imaginary movie. I think that's really interesting. So I'd have to say Todd. Well, thank you again for the suggestion and for your time. And no, thank uh, you. the best of luck with the exhibit. And I look forward to actually uh, having the opportunity to see the prints for myself. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for another episode. If you have any comments, please email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook. Links to both of those can be found on the blog. And if you're lucky enough to have a Google uh, Plus account, track me down there as well. As always, please consider supporting the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or on your own blog. And please consider making a donation to help support the show. Any amount, however modest, really helps to offset my cost in producing the program. The editor for this episode was Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And I'm Ibarion X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com